Acts 23, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles there. And I'm going to actually read um, the last verse of Acts 22, verse 30, uh, and then uh, the whole chapter here of chapter 23. So listen to the word of the Lord. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and sat him before them. Chapter 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. When he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for they for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. 
also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him, to, brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit to understand your word, to grasp it, to believe it, to lay it up in our hearts, to practice it in our lives. So we pray for that spirit's power to be at work among us this morning, Lord. And we pray that you, by your spirit, through your word, would transform us and renew us and change us. And we pray that in doing so, honor would be brought to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old saying, uh, when you're talking to someone who refuses to listen or take seriously what you are saying, we say it's like talking to a wall. It's like talking to a wall. Many of us have been in the position of trying to get through to someone about something important, trying to convey truth that the other person refuses to listen to. Whether a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, or the like, we have many of us been in that position. And the experience often leaves us filled with disappointment, with frustration, even anger at times. Talking to walls just isn't that rewarding. <laughs> and yet, I came to tell you this morning that bearing witness to Jesus in this world means facing the truth that in some cases and in some spaces, we will in fact face the unenviable task of preaching to walls. Preaching to walls. We will, if we are committed to Jesus, have to stand in front of people proclaiming to them a Jesus and a kingdom that has come through him that they refuse to hear. Preaching to walls, brothers and sisters, is a fact of our Christian witness in this world. And the wall, the wall represented in our text by the high priest, whom the apostle refers to as a whitewashed wall, often hides the truth that is behind the walls. And the truth that is often behind that wall is the stench of death. The stench of death. You see, in that day, tombs were covered in whitewash type of paint meant to mask the reality that what one was looking at was, in fact, a tomb. So Paul's words 
in Acts 23.3 are a clear statement that this religious ruler, though appearing to represent life, is in fact filled with death. I'll speak to Paul's retraction of his statement in a moment, but for now, suffice it to say that as Paul faced the wall represented in this high priest, he knew that he was in fact staring at one committed not to life, but to death. And you and I, brothers and sisters, as we preach the Lord Jesus, are going to face some walls behind which is nothing more than the stench of death. Indeed, it is our preaching of the Lord Jesus, who is the aroma of life, that will expose that aroma of death that is behind those other walls. And the walls we face, brothers and sisters, are varied. There are the ideological walls of the culture that tell us that God's ways are not life-giving, and that we are at our best when we are enabled to do whatever we want to do without restrictions. There are the political walls of the state that tell us that power ultimately resides in the decisions it renders rather than in those that God declares in his word. Then there are the religious walls where a commitment to tradition for tradition's sake supersedes and often neglects what Jesus referred to as the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And of course, there are the personal walls where a commitment to self over everyone else causes us to neglect our calling from God to love our neighbor as ourselves. These walls, all of them at times, hide the stench of death, a death that some have bound themselves to, to the point where they will gladly give our lives over to death to protect their wall. Paul, Paul was standing in front of one of these walls. And as he stood before the high priests and the council of elders of his own people according to the flesh, he was working to preach the gospel to that wall. (laughs) And I want to tell you, we will be called at times to preach to walls too, brothers and sisters, to preach to people who refuse to listen to our testimony. So what does it take? What does it take to preach to walls? What what does it take to stand in front of walls which are hiding the stench of death and preach the Lord Jesus? Well, I want to tell you, first of all, it takes a Jesus-empowered courage. It takes a Jesus-empowered courage. The tribune wanting to understand the reason for the anger and violence directed at Paul he decides to convene the chief priests in the council of the Jewish elders to get to the bottom of the issue. And as Paul stands before the council and before the high priest, it becomes clear pretty quickly that he is standing before that proverbial wall that we've been speaking of. Only only the walls that we face as we bear testimony about Jesus in this world, they are not stationary walls. They are walls that move. And these walls hit These walls hit. These walls, when threatened, do whatever they need to to ensure their own survival. In Paul's case, the hit was a physical one. The high priest commands that Paul be struck by one of those who is standing near to him. And why? He commanded that Paul be struck simply for trying to tell his story, the story he had over and over again about what he had experienced. 
about what he had seen, about what he had come to believe. He was struck for beginning to tell the story that he had told about Jesus before, about the kingdom of God come through him, about salvation come through faith in him. Before he could even get firmly into the story, he is struck. And he is struck because the chief priests and the rulers have heard the story. It's not an unfamiliar one to them. After all, many of them had likely been complicit in the death of Jesus. And they no doubt had heard the same story from the other apostles who lived in Jerusalem and were not going to listen to the story again. They were not going to listen to it because they had their own story. And they were going to protect that story at all costs. Just a quick note here that when Paul apologizes concerning the high priest, he's actually not retracting the substance of his statement. He's only acknowledging his commitment to, the, to obey the law of God and not revile a ruler. You might say he was reconsidering his choice of words, but not the truth of them. In this way, he is actually demonstrating more faithfulness to the law of God than the high priest who completely disregards the law by commanding Paul to be assaulted without a trial. And so, this wall that Paul runs into hits him, continues the violence toward him that he had already experienced from his fellow countrymen. And this is what the walls of resistance to the gospel do when they are threatened. They hit. Paul's hit was physical, yet we know from the rest of the Bible that the hit can come in other forms. It can come in the form of the loss of our possessions. It can come in the form of the loss of our privileges. It can come in the form of loss of membership in the community. It can come in the form of loss of our reputation. When the walls are threatened, they hit. And so what do we do? What do we need to do when we stand in front of those walls and faithfully preach the gospel? What do we need to face the violence of these walls against us? Brothers and sisters, we need courage. And by courage, I don't mean the foolhardy rush into danger without fear of risk trying to prove some worldly idea of manhood or womanhood. I mean that courage that comes from Jesus' words, the courage that comes from hearing the voice of the risen Jesus. You see, the reason Paul could have courage is that he was not standing in front of the wall of these religious leaders on behalf of a dead Jesus. No, he was standing in front of this wall on behalf of a risen Savior. The one who stood by him and told him to take courage was alive. He was the one that the religious rulers had actually put to death, and yet God had raised him from the dead. The one who spoke to him was the one himself who had faced death and had been resurrected from the grave. The wall struck him until he was dead, but God raised him up. And that same Jesus, that same, that same Jesus who spoke to Paul now speaks to his church by the Spirit as we face the walls in front of us, the walls that resist the good news of the gospel, that resist the kingdom of God, that resist life as God holds it out in his word, the walls that resist justice and that resist mercy and that resist faithfulness, and that Jesus says to us as we face those walls, take Courage. I am not dead. I am alive. And you will not be dead. You will live because of my life.
Take courage. Take courage because on the other side of the blows of these walls is resurrection and life. On the other side of the blows of these walls that we face is a new heaven and a new earth. Take courage because my resurrection is the certainty of your resurrection and the resurrection of all who have faith in me. The Jesus who spoke to Paul was a living Jesus and he was saying to Paul, I've been where you are and I'm telling you, God's going to raise you. Amen, brothers and sisters. The call here for us is to trust the words of the risen Jesus amid the hardship we face as we proclaim Christ to resistant people who are holding on to their own ideas and narratives over against the gospel of Christ. We must believe the words of our risen Lord. We have every reason for courage because Christ is not dead but alive. And if he is alive, then it means that whatever those resistant walls may do to us, we will share in his life, both in the present as he give us, gives us power by his spirit to endure and persevere, and we will receive life in the new heavens and the new earth where we will share in the resurrection of Jesus. Whatever they do to us, there is only life ahead of us. So don't let the blows... Don't let the blows that you receive from those resistant walls cause you to give up or to believe that their power is greater than the Lord's or that they have the final word over your life. Indeed, if you are lacking in courage as you face the hardship, ask the Lord Jesus to give you courage by the power of his spirit. Ask him to help you trust his voice over the blows inflicted upon you by those who resist the gospel. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that the blows are not discouraging. I'm not saying that they are not painful to endure. They are. Some of the things we face as we bear testimony to Jesus, they will be hard and extremely hard at times. Yet we have every reason to be encouraged for our risen Lord suffered and died, but is alive again. And we too will live because of his life. Take courage, the Lord says to the Apostle Paul, and the one who is speaking to him is the risen Lord. So what do we do when we face these walls? Well, what do we need when we face these walls? Well, we need, we need courage, Jesus-empowered courage. But we also need, brothers and sisters, as we face these walls, we also need the selfless acts of committed companions. The selfless acts of committed companions. Paul knew he wouldn't receive a fair hearing in front of the religious walls, and yet he continues to try to, to fight for a space, an opportunity to present the gospel he's been preaching. And so being a Pharisee and knowing the dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over the resurrection, he throws out an issue that he knows the two groups are actually in dispute over. And yet Paul knows that this issue could allow him an opportunity to present Christ. So he tells them that he is, that is, that it's the hope of the resurrection that is the reason that he is in bonds. And Paul knows that the hopes of his people, indeed the hope of all peoples, hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without the resurrection, we are all of us still in our sins. Yet Paul's hope for an opportunity to present the gospel at this very point quickly fades. And it fades because people who have 
made a deal with death can't hear truth. Now I'm going to say that again. People who have made a deal with death cannot hear truth. Indeed, words that were meant to provide an opportunity for hope become the decision point for these men to pursue death, the death of Paul. It seems actually absurd to us as we read it, but a fight breaks out over whose theological view of the resurrection is right. And when I say fight, I mean a real fight. Things became violent among people who believe in God. Things got violent among people who claim to worship the true and living God. Became violent to the point where Paul has to be rescued again by the tribune for fear that he would be killed, torn to pieces, is the phrasing used in the ESV. But here's the even more absurd thing. The next day, you would think they would like have thought about their actions. And they, they had 24 hours to think about what had just happened. And even after 24 hours, the next day, a group of over 40 men make a vow not to eat or drink until Paul is dead. This means they are calling for their own death if they are not successful in fulfilling the vow. Someone once said, sin is stupid. <laughs> Exhibit A, these 40 men. Yet this is what marrying yourself to violence and death brings. It can only lead in the end to your own demise, for death is no respecter of persons. Those who live by the sword often die by it. Death begets death. So this plot is made. A plot, by the way, that Paul knows nothing about. Nor does the tribune or the soldiers whose job it is to guard Paul. Without help, Paul is most surely going to die. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you that the call to bear witness to Jesus in the face of the walls that we face that are often arrayed against us means having committed companions. Folks who will put their own lives on the line for your life. You need what the hip-hop world calls ride-or-die friends. Some of y'all, some of y'all listen to hip-hop. So. Some of y'all don't, but some of y'all listen to hip-hop. You need ride-or-die friends. Folk who will risk their lives to save your life. And Paul had this in his nephew. We often forget that these apostles had family members. Paul's sister's son, his nephew, hears about this plot to kill Paul. How he heard about it, we don't know, but he did. And at the risk of being found out, he goes to Paul in prison and tells him about the plot. Paul then has a soldier take him to the tribune so he can tell him about the plot, which he does. But what if somehow these 40 had gotten word of this? What if some soldier among those guarding Paul had been like Judas, a lover of money, willing to sell this information to those 40 men for a bribe? Indeed, what if the tribune's commands had not been heeded? this young man's life would most certainly have been in danger. And yet, he enters into that risk 
for the sake of his uncle, for the sake of the gospel his uncle was preaching, a gospel he had no doubt heard him preach. All I'm saying is this, that along this journey of bearing witness to Jesus, to walls, to walls that hit, we actually need ride or die companions who will lay down their lives for us. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we need to be willing to be those companions for each other in the body of Christ. We need to be the kind of people that are willing to lay down our lives for each other. We need to be the kind of people that are willing to stand on each other's behalf when we are in danger. We need to be that kind of body for each other. When we call each other brother and sister, that means needs to mean something. We should not simply be using those words in a general way. If you call me brother, then I am expecting that you will actually act and behave like my brother. I am spe- expecting that, that if you call me that as a sister, that you're actually going to treat me like a brother. Otherwise, don't use that term to refer to me if you're not willing to actually be that to me. If we're not willing to be that to each other, we shouldn't use those words. But if we are willing to be that to each other, then let us remember that God who laid down the life of his own son on our behalf calls us to lay down our lives on each other's behalf. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we cannot preach to walls on our own. We need faithful companions who will stand with us helping us as we face the dangers and challenges of bearing witness about Jesus in this world. And there is encouragement in this for us not to view ourselves as alone. To not view ourselves as alone. Or to seek to be solo artists in this call to bear bear witness about Jesus in this world. We need companions. We need fellow believers who will join us, join with us in laying down our lives for the Lord laying down our life for each other in the process. And that means, that means speaking up for each other when we see each other in trouble. When we see our brothers and sisters in danger from the blows of these resistant walls we have been talking about, we need to figure out how to come alongside them and aid them. This will mean placing ourselves at risk for the blows that come from those committed to their narratives over against the Lord's gospel. We must, like Paul's nephew, be willing to speak up. And such a calling is not easy. Paul's nephew didn't experience any repercussions, but it doesn't mean we won't when we stand with our brothers and sisters who are in danger. In the same way, we need to ask for the Spirit's power to trust Jesus' voice over the blows we receive for bearing witness about him. We need to ask for the Spirit's power to stand up for those who are in danger. Amen, people of God. So as we preach to walls, (laughs) we need a Jesus-empowered encouragement, a Jesus-empowered courage, but we also need the selfless act of committed companions. Lastly, brothers and sisters, we need a God-orchestrated providence. Say that again, a God-orchestrated providence. We'll get Presbyterian with you for a second. The providence of God. It would be easy to read the rest of this narrative in which the tribune takes steps to ensure Paul's safety as nothing more than the state doing what it was designed to do, that is, to protect the rights of its citizens. Paul is a Roman citizen, and therefore the state 
is ensuring that his rights are protected. Indeed, you could build a theology of the state, noting the tribune's actions as in keeping with the state's responsibilities under God. But to read it this way is to miss a fundamental truth that underlies these seemingly routine actions of the state. In verse 3, when Jesus tells Paul to take courage, he speaks these words. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In other words, your testimony about me is not going to end in Jerusalem because I still have work for you to do, and that work is in Rome. Some of y'all didn't hear that. Considering this statement, the actions of the state are all taking place under the providential hand of God. And when the hand of God's providence is at work, even the state must bend to his will. Even the state must bend to his will. No, Rome isn't doing what it's doing because it loves Paul or because it sympathizes with this position. Indeed, the state that Paul was grappling with was even more violent than these religious fanatics who wanted him dead. Rome had proven in its commitment to stamp out any and all claims to usurp its power. But when Jesus says to Paul that he will testify about him in Rome, you best believe Paul will be testifying in Rome. And, oh boy. and isn't this just like God? That under his providential hand, the imprisoned one becomes the protected one. Isn't this just like God? That the imprisoned one becomes the protected one. Listen to the tribune again. Then he called two of his centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. If you listen closely underneath the machinations of men, you can hear the voice of the Lord saying, for as you have testified about the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I got news for you today. Our destiny is not in the hands of anybody or anything other than almighty God. It's not in the hands of our enemies. It's not in the hands of the state. It's not in the hands of blind fate. It's not even in our own hands. Our destinies are bound up with that of the Savior. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid of the task of standing in front of walls and preaching the gospel. Your life is in God's hands. Be not dismayed, whatever be tied. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Through every day, over all the way, he will take care of you. God will take care of you. And when the world gathers together, its own version of those 40 committed to take you out, just sing to your own soul. No matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Lean weary one upon his breast. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day, over all the way. He will take care 
of you. You are not in anybody's hands, but the hands of Almighty God. The hands of God's providence are guiding your life. Do not believe the lie that your life is haphazard or hapless or that somehow things are happening to you and God doesn't see it and God doesn't know it and God is not concerned or God does not care. He sees everything that's going on. That's why we love Romans 8 so much. And I know and we know that for those who love God, all things, not some, not a few, not only the good stuff, not only the stuff you like and love, but every single thing that happens in your life, God is working it together for your good and for the good of all those who are called according to his purpose. If your faith is in Jesus, you're called according to his purpose, and that means the hands of providence are guiding your life. You say, but you don't know, Pastor. You don't know the stuff that happens to me. You don't know stuff I got to deal with. You don't know what people have said to me and done to me. You don't know, you don't know what I just had to deal with this week. You don't know the pains and the suffering and the hardship and the difficulty. Yeah, you know what, Pastor Tony don't know. But you know who does know? You know who does see? You know who does care? You know who it does matter to you? Every single hair on your head, Jesus says, has been numbered. You know who cares about you? The one who knows intimately every single hair on your head. Or that's not on your head, either way. The call is not to believe that you are outside of his providential care. God is in the midst, even of your hard circumstances, as you bear witness for him in this world. The call is to believe that he will walk with you, granting you everything you need, until his work for you in this world is done. And as Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear me this morning? Nobody can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus. Praise God, people. And this was true when Jesus said it. And it's true for us today. So I got news for you. You're going to preach the gospel. And as you preach that gospel, sometimes you're going to preach to walls. People who don't want to hear what you have to say. And in that resistance, they're going to push back. They're going to hit you with blows. Those blows are going to hurt. And they're going to be discouraging at times. And they're going to be painful. And they're going to be difficult. You know what you need? You know what you need? You need a Jesus-empowered encouragement, an encouragement that comes from knowing your, your Jesus, our Jesus, is alive. You also need committed companions who will engage in selfless acts on your behalf, who will stand with you as you preach, those, preach that gospel to walls. And you need a God-orchestrated providence to know that every single aspect of your life is in the hands of Almighty God. Amen, people of God. Amen. 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 Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have called us to bear witness for you in this world. That you have set us apart, in fact, for this purpose. 
The Bible itself says that we've been called out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we've been called into the kingdom of your son, that we might declare the excellencies of him who, have called, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lord, help us not only to believe that we've been set apart and that we've been called to bear witness about you in this world, but, but, but as we preach that gospel, as we bear witness about you, and those, those, that, that resistance comes, those, those blows come from those walls that we often stand in front of. Father, we pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, that you would give us that courage that we need that comes from your Spirit and that comes from knowing that you are alive. That, we, that you would give us that spirit of being committed companions to each other in the body of Christ to lay down our lives for one another on one another's behalf, and that you would indeed remind us every day that our lives are in your hands and that it is your providential care that is really guiding our life. So I pray for your people this morning to know it, to believe it, to embrace it by the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.